welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. The following is a bonus episode of this podcast. The topic is on dreams. I now have 10 minutes for the interpretation of dreams. Can I do it? I don't know. This is a summary of chapter 10 of the new introductory lectures by Freud, which is called The Dream Work. And I'll try now to talk you through it. So when you tell a friend your dream, what you are telling them is the manifest content. That's the dream narrative. And what's strange about the dream narrative is it's unbelievably illogical. And it's incoherent. It's characterized by huge shifts in theme, huge shifts in dramatis personae. The whole cast of characters changes from one second to another sometimes. You have amazing narrative ruptures, you know, like you're canoeing down a, a river and then suddenly you're in a concrete vault, right? It's like, you know, how can I make a story out of this? Well, that's the mistake. You're looking for logic and coherence at the level of the manifest content. Now, the, the nature of the relationship that you're seeking is not between elements of the manifest content, but between the manifest content and the latent content. And it's very difficult because there's no one-to-one mapping between the manifest content and the latent content. Because the latent content has usually been disguised in various ways. And so the way that the latent content has been disguised is in the process of symbolism, the dream work, and secondary revision. And so what you as an interpreter, either of your own dreams or of others, have to do is undo that process of disguise via the process of interpretation. Those are the arrows on the left-hand side. The thing that cracks me up about my diagram, it's a PDF, so I can't change it. I'll have to go back to the original document, is that in the dream work, I've missed out one element of the dream work, and the the element I've missed out is called omission. It's just weird, isn't it? Anyway, I love that. Um, So the dream work is characterized by condensation. I'm sure you all know what this is like. Someone who looks like person A, they talk like person B, but you really know that they're person C. Yeah, you had those sorts of composite creatures in your dream. That's condensation. What Freud would say is look at the commonalities among those three people that you've kind of put together like a composite beast. There'll be something that they've got in common. They all liked you more than you liked them, or vice versa. Or they all were a bit arrogant in relation to you and put you down. Okay, there might be something like that that links them. The other thing that happens is omission. You just omit certain elements. Like the the really fabulous example that I have from many years ago was where a friend was telling me a dream. Um, Oh, this is a very good one for today's lecture, actually. Um, She was in the dream. She was walking down to the beach. The waves were full of killer sharks, basically. And there were these two little children walking towards the waves. And she was horrified because she noticed that she wasn't going to stop the children, that she was just standing there. So the omission was what was significant. And the dream, of course, and as it turned out, was about unconscious anger. How angry would you have to be to let two little kids walk to their death? Pretty angry, wouldn't you? Okay. So that's how psychoanalysts work. And you can see why some people don't take it seriously, but I think it's pretty cool. 
if you know how to do it, I think you can come to know your own dreams in interesting ways. And certainly those of others, if you can listen for long enough, because if you notice how boring other people's dreams are, and they're totally fascinated. And then after that, I, and you're like, you know, it's like a surrealism of one that's like really not that good. Okay. So the other thing that happens in dream work is displacement. You, it would be too nerve wracking and anxiety provoking to dream directly about your desires. So you dream about the next best thing. That's called metonymy or a displacement along the chain of associations. And um, plastic representation. Um, you can't dream, you don't dream in words. You dream sensorily. It's as if things are happening. It's like you're watching a movie screen or you're in the midst of the action. Um, so you're smelling things, you're feeling things, you're trying to run, a common experience. The bedclothes get in the way. Okay, um, so plastic representation. Dreams take things right back to the original sensory experience. And so if you're trying to convey something like possessing or ownership, you'll be sitting on something or you'll be eating it and devouring it. And so often you get uh, ambivalence there. Like if you're eating something, you're really keeping it close to you, but you're also destroying it. Do you know? So devouring is kind of quite an ambivalent sort of image. Okay. Symbolism. I'm not sure what I think about Freud's notion of symbolism. He doesn't just mean pictures. What he means by symbolism is that normally what a psychoanalyst would do is ask you to free associate. So tell me about the beach, tell me about the sharks, tell me about the children, tell me about your inaction on that beach. What does it signal for you? Why does it matter to you? Um, he would say that if the person was entirely silent, one of two things would be happening. They were either feeling negative transference or positive transference that, towards the uh, therapist, or that element was there in a symbolic capacity. And so he, he thought that there was a one-to-one -one associations that could be drawn between certain dream symbols and their meanings. So fruit and balconies are breasts and journeys are death, etc. And it's like those old Victorian dream diaries. And he thought that there were only certain things that were inevitably symbolically represented. And Geza Roheim, a Hungarian analyst, says that the things that we represent symbolically are the things that are in common across all humanity, like the sun. We're dependent on the sun for its warmth and for crops and for growth, and we die and perish if the sun didn't shine on our planet. So there are some things like birth, death, etc., that are always a symbolically present thing. I know that you know that the whole reason for thought dreams were so significant was he felt it was incredibly strong evidence for the existence of an unconscious. And that was something that he really had to demonstrate in those days. But it's not its not cognitive activity in, in the kind of thought that we normally have. It's cognitive activity in the form of images. So it's actually like a surrogate experience. So as you're dreaming, you aren't usually what's called lucid. You don't think, oh, I know this is a dream. You actually think that this is real. And it's actually happening. It's a bit bizarre, but the very fact that you don't really mind that it's bizarre, you just kind of go with it, shows the existence of what's called primary process thought. And that's going to end up being important when we start to talk about creativity. Because if you're too rational, if you've got to sort of have good logical analytic reasons for everything that you do, it actually inhibits your creativity later on in life. And so that primary process thought, which is kind of irrational thought, it's kind of loose in its associations, you know, it, it goes from one thing to another with no rhyme or reason, but 
there is actually nonetheless a deeper logic, a deep sort of unconscious revealing logic of what goes with what for you. The fact that you can move from one aspect of the dream to another aspect of the dream reveals that there's a connection between those two things for you. And it might not be something that anyone else would see as being connected. But it's precisely those connections that betray you or reveal you. And it's precisely those connections that the analyst is interested in. So it's a surrogate experience. So what Freud showed was that a lot of things that we think are really rational, like our everyday speech and our everyday action, he showed us that there were all sorts of irrational elements intertwined with those. And then dreams, which everybody thought was just kind of brain scum, brain goo, basically, random electrical activity. He said, no, you know, there's actual meaning here. We can track the operation of mental processes in quite a revealing way. It's a, you know, a, a royal road, a highway to the unconscious, he thought. And so he's got a very interesting take on rationality and irrationality because rational means you can justify it, but nonetheless there can be another kind of logic to the rational imposed logic. So he showed that the mind is indeed active during sleep, that dreams have meaning, but they're not actually trying to communicate to anyone. It's just that what goes with what for you is what's associated with pleasure. If you think about it, the sex drive wants a particular object, but if that's too threatening, it'll flip onto the next available object. And if that's still too threatening, it'll flip onto the next available object, down a chain of associations. And so if you seem to be desiring something zany in your dreams, Freud will get you, he'll say, well, you know, when you think about your father's pipe, what comes to mind for you? And he'll hope that you go back up that chain of associations towards the more threatening objects, and he'll get the latent meaning or the wish that's behind the dream. So he didn't ask people about dreams. He just found that patients and clients would raise those issues in and of themselves. Like, I had this really weird dream. And they want to understand it. They want to know what it's about. And he got very good at interpreting the dream. But that's not to say that the sensor disguises the unconscious so that they can communicate to others. It's not like that. It's more like substitute pleasures. It's the same with, say, anorexia nervosa. It's not as if unconscious conflicts are written on the body so that someone can work out that I'm suffering in my family. It's just that I'm suffering in my family and the way that I manage to manage and contain my conflicts around sexuality and dependence and you know, perfectionism and ambition and whatever is that I have this counter-cathexis of bodily symptoms. And for those who've got the eyes to see that as having that meaning, then they can interpret it back to the unconscious conflict. But I don't coded in the body so that people can read it off my body. It's not that kind of endeavor. So what censorship's about when you're sleeping is to protect your dream. Did I tell you the story about the, the father who had lost his son? Did I tell you that dream story? Okay. Um, it's quite a beautiful one because it really shows the power of the dream. Here is how it goes. And this is a, a man who came to see Freud. And his, this man's young son had just died after a very long illness. And the father 
had been sitting beside the sickbed of the son. Now that the son had died in the culture that this man was part of, you now sat beside the dead body of the child with candles and the bodies draped with a sheet. And you you sit there and you wait, you know, for the ritual process to commence. And um, the man was exhausted because he'd been tending the sick child and now he had to sit up in this vigil over the dead body of his son. And so he ends up going to sleep in the next room and gets an old man to come and watch over the body of the child. And he starts to have a dream. And in the dream, his son is shaking his arm and, and saying, Father, can't you see I'm burning? And the man wakes up and indeed the day residue of what was happening in the room had been incorporated into the dream. There was indeed fire and flames and smoke. A candle had dropped over and was burning the arm of the dead child. And so the father had obviously, you know, worked out in his sleep what was going on. Now Freud says you might think it's remarkable that the dream contents convey what was actually going on in reality. But he said there's something even more remarkable than that. Why on earth would the censorship act to preserve the dreaming state when what is evolutionally required is the most rapid waking possible? Fire! Like there could be nothing more primordial that we have to respond to. But, he says, the wish of the dream was that for every moment that the man prolonged his dream, he prolonged the life of his child for that extra instance. So he preferred the non-reality, if you like, the wishful state of his child as still alive, even though it was endangering his own life. So it's like the dream could override this kind of limbic signal of fire and smoke in the same room. So incredibly powerful to show you the power of the wish. And I think that's a, a really a beautiful case study that, that Freud uses. So the manifest content or the remembered dream is the conscious effect of an unconscious wish. And so often the manifest dream doesn't make a lot of sense because that's not the way that you sort of interpret it, which is what my diagram is trying to convey to you. What's actually at the latent content of a dream, the motivating force, is a wish. And Freud sees that as as an ancestor of desire because it's really, really close to being action. The wish is about something that you want to do. Um, And it's so the type of mental activity that you find in dreams is dramatically different from rational, secondary process, conceptual thinking. Um, But primary process, where you think in terms of quite concrete images and you've got quite loose associations, it's actually a very important type of mental activity. So at the beginning of your exam, for instance, when I suggest that you jot down everything that comes to mind on a scrap piece of paper, What I'm trying to encourage you to do is to use your primary process thought to be very rangy, to allow you to sort of think of everything that you can imagine in the course that might possibly relate to the essay topic, and then to go back and go, okay, what would be a good starting point for my essay question? Okay, this is point number one. Oh, and these points would be one A, B, and C, and you kind of slot them in. In hindsight, But you don't start off trying to be completely rational because that just means that you'll probably just reproduce the contents of a single lecture 
Whereas what we're interested in is you making connections between different lectures or, or connections between your seminar strands or things you've read in lectures. So primary process, I think, is a very creative process. And um, I actually think it's something that you need to retain in your life because the psychoanalytic model of development is not oh you have primary process and then you give it up and you become really rational it's like you carry with you the vestiges of your childhood you know everything your primary your polymorphous perversity you know you still have that as part of your sexuality when you grow up it's not like you have to leave absolutely everything behind now the weird thing about dreams is that often the image will capture two opposing things. Like if you dream about being eaten up by your parent in a dream, there's a sort of the two opposite emotions there. The parent is protecting you and keeping you close, literally embodying you, but also destroying your individuality. And so often there is ambivalence, even in images, and you have to take that pretty seriously. Um, Dreams, Freud suggests, provides a gratification of a wish. And there's all sorts of literature suggesting, well, what about counter-wish dreams, you know, where you've had something traumatic and then the, the dream just reproduces the trauma. And, I mean, that is, that's a serious concern. But what's interesting about sort of contemporary findings is that previously they thought that during REM, the motivational components of the brain were not active, and they now discover that dreams are not unique to REM and that they sometimes occur and, and quite often occur, in fact, when motivational parts of the brain actually are active. So it looks like there might be a, a possibility of a science of dreaming. Okay. But secondary process thought is really interesting because I think last week I was telling you that, that actually it's the mother who doesn't arrive on time that makes you have to sort of try to pacify your urges and longings for yourself in thought or in fantasy, that's actually what makes you able to be capable of representing things in thought which are not actually present. So weirdly enough, it's only by being frustrated that you advance. So you don't want a mother who's too good in a way. You just want a good enough mother who gets there most of the time, really, you know, before you're really desperately hungry but isn't, you know, there at your beck and call. There's got to be that little gap, that little delay that enables you to recognize, oh, she's separate. Oh, she may not arrive. Oh, I'm a separate person from her, that self-other distinction. And also, um, the sex drive is pretty good at hallucinating satisfaction. Like Fantasy is a very real source of satisfaction for us, but hallucinated objects don't completely satisfy um, and so, and that's a good thing because it makes us, it forces us out into the world in a sense. It means that we have to become sensitive to conditions in the environment, conditions in reality that might genuinely satisfy our bodily need. Like just fantasizing foods, you're going to starve basically. And that's what Jonathan Lear says in his beautiful book, Love and Its Place in Nature, an organization that was slave to the pleasure principle and neglected the reality of the external world could not maintain itself alive for the shortest time. So much so, he says, that it could not have come into existence at all. So he thinks that secondary process is there right from the start, but that primary process is dominant when you're a baby because other people are doing the secondary process things for you. Okay, so that's me sort of wanting to sort of complete the stuff on dreams so that you realize their significance and, and are comfortable with some of those notions. This bonus episode is the final lecture content for this series. 
there will be one more uh, bonus episode released, which is a progressive muscle relaxation tape recorded by Doris McElwain. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you continue to enjoy and explore psychoanalysis in the future. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Mm-hmm.